Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is working on the portal, soundhealthportal.com. If you go to soundhealthportal.com, click on services, then click on campaigns, you'll see several free services you can try out right now at the Sound Health Portal to do a vocal print. You'll do two 45-second recordings, and those will be called vocal prints because then it's run through software to break it down so that it can be analyzed by the software. Currently, some of the campaigns are BioDiet, Neuroplasticity, PTSD, Golf. I always try to leave it off the list, but I can't. Really, I have known golfers that have had a workup done on their vocal print and taken that to their practitioner and worked on their muscles and how they swing and all that, and it actually improved their game by doing a vocal print because it's going to show you things that are either too high or too low or what might be in a state of imbalance. Golfers are actually competitive athletes. We just might not think of them that way as they saunter around the golf course in possibly funny pants. You go to services, you go to campaigns, you pick a campaign that you'd like, you sign up for a free account, and this is just so you'll get the email with your report. You'll do two 45-second recordings directly from your computer, and the system will, once you start this process, the system will walk you through the recordings give you a little timer to watch so that you talk long enough. I do recommend, if possible, doing it with something like the Samsung Go mic, which is a reasonably priced mic, which you can find at soundhealthoptions.com under store. And it's a handy mic to have, especially in this age of everybody doing Zoom and conferences. It's a really nice little can-clip-to-your-monitor microphone. And so you'll do two 45-second recordings, You'll pick your campaign, and you'll submit that, and within 2 to 24 hours, I rarely had to wait even more than 10 hours, you'll get a report with a boatload of information where you'll see things that are high hypertonistic or low hypotonistic and where things might be out of balance, and you want to work on that. And it's really helpful, or that really helps me figure that out. And then you can take that to your healthcare practitioner and talk about what you can do to work on that area. It's amazing. You can also go to soundhealthoptions.com and look under media and see some demos of Sherry doing a workup in real time online where she's recorded the demo. Seeing the Sound Health Portal in action is really amazing because the amount of charts and the amount of information that Sherry has help design the system. She's working with coders to design the system to show visuals so that you can really get a, oh, that's the most important thing out there. I need to work on that. It's really great. So you can see those demos at soundhealthoptions.com under media. And I say this every week, and I'm going to keep saying it. This is one of those shows you're going to want to probably replay and listen to again and take more notes and or share with your friends who have, in this case, possibly an eating disorder or an eating issue. You'll be able to find the replay of the show. You can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, click on Sound Health Radio. Right at the top of that page, you'll be able to see 
the flyer for this week's show and a link back to Blog Talk Radio where the show notes are and the links to the doctor's information his book is. And or you'll also look at the top and you'll see a link either to Stitcher or to Pocket Cast, both really good podcast aggregators. Are, they're both cross-platform. They work everywhere, computer, Android, iOS, Linux, Chromebooks, everything. I tend to prefer Pocket Cast because I've been using it for years, and it has a lot of really great features. And you can listen there and click on the link, and you'll be able to listen to the replay and or with both of them. There's some place when you open the page for the show, you'll be able to see a share, I believe it's usually called. And you just click that, and you send it off to somebody. And there's going to be a lot of – I've interviewed Dr. Greenblatt a number of times before, and he's filled with – Really great information. Positive information, the word that pops into my mind, really positive, helpful information. With that, millions of people struggle with an unhealthy, unhappy, and unsatisfying relationship with food. An individual's relationship with food can be complex and complicated. Americans are obsessed with food and weight control. Integrative Medicine for Binge Eating, a comprehensive guide to the New Hope model for the elimination of binge eating and food cravings by James Greenblatt, MD, and Virginia Ross Taylor, PhD, explores the complex landscape of disordered eating and tools now available to treat and prevent it. A pioneer in the field of integrative medicine, James M. Greenblatt, MD, has treated patients with complex behavioral and mood disorders since 1990. After receiving his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine, Dr. Greenblatt completed his psychiatry residency at George Washington University Medical Center. For the last three decades, Dr. Greenblatt has devoted his career to educating his colleagues, clinicians, and patients how integrative medicine can have profound effects on mental wellness, how to employ balanced, integrative strategies in the treatment of mental illness. Dr. Greenblatt currently serves as Chief Medical Officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts, and serves as an Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Dr. Greenblatt joins us to talk about integrative medicine for binge eating. Welcome, Doctor. Uh, It's very nice to be here and, and talk with you today. I appreciate it. Really looking forward to this because you always we've talked to you about lithium and Alzheimer's. We've talked to you about a number of things. I like your attitude. <laughs> Great. Well, I I hope today we can not just talk about binge eating, but also the other uh, more life threatening eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. Both are um, poorly understood by our medical colleagues and in desperate need of a kind of a restructuring the model. Excellent. Yeah, those are both just that. Well, I could stop right there and we could just talk about just that. But I have other questions first. Sure. When you were getting your medical degree, did you already have thoughts of integrative medicine approach? Or did this evolve did. in the process? Oh, you did? Okay. I actually went to medical school very interested in nutrition and health. Um, you know, personal interest and also um, in terms of what I wanted my career to look like. 
and uh, but it you know didn't last very long as I got through medical school and training and I sort of came out as a child psychiatrist prescribing medications and lost that uh, interest, not interest, that the uh, ability to utilize integrative medicine when I got out of training because there's no, at 10 years of training where there was no teaching of nutrition, teaching of integrative health. And it just took a few years being out in practice where I quickly realized why I went back into medicine and, and was able to kind of shift my career and focus over the past 30 years to a integrative um, model for, for mental health. <laughs> I can't help but say this. So you were kind of a rabble rouser right out of the gate in the sense of thinking that way that nutrition was involved. I'm not, I'm not slamming Western medicine. It's just always surprised me. I think we're of a similar vintage. That uh, Absolutely. Yeah. In the 1980s, a couple of us set up an elective in the medical school, um, the first elective in the country where we invited uh, acupuncturists and chiropractors and uh, integrative health doctors to speak with the medical students, but we had to do it outside the curriculum, not within. Wow. And in your 30 years of practice, have you observed more complex health or mental issues that I would attribute possibly to the total toxic load of our environment? I mean, 30 years ago, the environment was toxic enough. I mean, I was dusted with DDT on a fairly regular basis because I lived near, I grew up near the Salinas Valley. And it used to be fun to drive the Salinas Valley and be, hang your head out of the car with the crop duster flying over the street. I mean, literally flying over the road and dusting the crops with DDT. So I had my fair share of exposures, but now it just seems like the toxic, total toxic load is amazing. Have you seen that make it even more complex? Uh, absolutely. As a child psychiatrist, you know, I see young kids with very com complicated neuropsychiatric disorders that don't fit any textbook, that don't respond to either traditional meds or even nutritional interventions. So I, I agree 100% that the complexity of the environmental insult and the genetics and what we're eating and not eating has um, created um, a very uh, stressful situation for mental health treatment. And I was going to save this for later, but it just jumps in now. If you had your cinematically your hands tied behind your back and you had to choose between working with a patient nutritionally versus talk therapy or, or that kind of therapy, which would you choose, you know, in that game where you only have one, which one would you choose to start? Well, that's a tough one because, you know, I'll keep going back to that three legged stool. Um, you know, our relationship with our patient, so that talk therapy, that connection has uh, a profound meaning uh, for healing. But a nutritional foundation is just as important and it's been completely ignored by so much of psychiatry and mental health treatment. So if someone is profoundly deficient in 
in B12 or vitamin D and their brain is not optimally functioned, there's no amount of talk therapy that would provide any benefit. Wow. And who did you write this book for? The, um, the, the world that I'm traveling, it depends on, on the day or the hour, I, I go between the, the books, which are written for the late person, the general audience, and then my uh, trainings, my courses, and my is written, uh, and most of them are online programs for professionals. So I'm doing what I can to try to re-educate our professionals. That's why our, our training program is called Psychiatry Redefined. But it's really the patients that have um, decided um, to take a stand and say, well, medicines have not helped enough in treatments of depression. And our current model of anorexia and, and binge eating is not sufficient. So I'm trying to juggle the consumer books and the professional courses. I kind of think there may be an effect also where the, where in other industries where we've seen, and in the health industry, I've seen it where somebody goes to either their practitioner or even the local health food store or consults a, well, it could be a dietitian, and says, what about this? What about, and so there may be, I'm, I'm hoping there's some of that benefit as well as patients are going to their doctors and saying, what about diet? My child's eating sugary cereals. Should I do something about that? That really always amazes me that it's, wow, really? Diet isn't in there still today? It's shocking to me. That's my view. Well, physicians, physicians um, you know, might get uh, an hour or two on nutrition, let alone diet and lifestyle. I mean, there are a few medical schools now that are dabbling in uh, cooking and teaching medical students uh, how to cook and the importance of food. And it, it's slowly changing, uh, but certainly not in our traditional uh, psychiatric model of how we treat patients that are suffering and struggling and looking for help. Wow. And I guess I'll start here. What is the New Hope model, and how does the New Hope model restore brain health? Well, for binge eating, we'll, we'll start there. It is a, um, the most common eating disorder. It's more common than anorexia, which is restricting, or even bulimia, which is. So binge eating is, is a very a rapid consumption of large amounts of food, usually um, secretive. It's, it's full of shame and stigma. It's not always related to weight. Some are overweight, some are normal weight. But the new hope model just kind of turns this current treatment model of just psychotherapy on its head and says, wait a minute, from our many years of studying obesity, we know that there are lots of chemicals in the brain that affect appetite and that affect the hunger cues and affect satiety being full. And so the new hope model looks at a biological an integrative model for helping individuals control this um, very uh, easily treatable, but very uh, frustrating uh, illness called binge eating disorder. And as people 
I'll back into, I, I want to talk about biochemical profiles, but I want to ask this first. Have you ever seen anybody go wrong is so not the word, but I can't come up with a better word at this moment, go awry or wrong by improving their diet? Um, well, the, uh, the short answer has to be no for the first nine out of 10 answers. But the one exception is sometimes our patients with anorexia nervosa, a very serious life-threatening disorder where they restricting food. Sometimes if they go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, you should eliminate dairy or wheat or eliminate this, it kind of fuels the restrictive and they can start um, losing more weight. But that's a very rare exception. So the short answer is absolutely not. Okay. Now, in the, in the category of biochemical profile, how do you, when a patient comes to you, or in as you're teaching people, where do they where do you start in terms of how do you figure out their biochemical profile and can you talk about biochemical profile? Sure. I mean the, the whole concept of integrated medicine and some people use the term functional medicine, and functional medicine is based on looking at the underlying cause. And it's based on this concept of biochemical individuality. We all look different and our chemistry is different. And the assessment for depression, for anxiety, or for binge eating disorder is the individual walks into your office, they have a list of symptoms. If we're talking about binge eating disorder, they are unable to control their appetite. They eat um, large quantities of food. They never feel full. They talk about this black hole of just needing to eat. And our model is, okay, we're understanding that it might have something to do with brain chemistry because that thermostat, if you will, of full satiety and hunger is not right. And then we start looking at testing, objective biological testing. What might be contributing to this uh, inability to control appetite? And we see lots of different things. We see um, nutritional deficiencies. A vitamin B12, we see deficiencies of enzymes, we see deficiencies of minerals, and also we also see addictions, addictions to gluten and dairy. So there's a whole host of factors that might be contributing, and our goal, almost more like detective, is to help that individual, one, um, try to support their lifelong feeling of shame and guilt, and help them understand that it is not their fault. It's not a weakness. There's some biochemistry that we might be able to help understand, and that's where we start. Could you say more about addiction to gluten? I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually say it that way. Talk about the – well, I guess I'll ask about the hormone cascade of being addicted to gluten. It's fascinating. Um it's a, a chapter in the binge eating book, but we, we talk about it in a lot of the work that we do. And um, for both gluten and dairy, uh, the protein, uh, gluten and, and casein, um, if they're not properly digested, there's a peptide, which is a, a protein molecule that actually looks like um, morphine. 
And the wheat, um, the gluten one is called gliadorphin. So it's, it's a little complicated. Let me try to explain it. So you take a piece of bread, um, you chew it, and the enzymes start in your mouth and then your stomach and acid, and you break it down to individual uh, amino acids. If you don't break it down completely, you get this little peptide called casomorphin, uh, no, gliadorphin for, for gluten, and that looks like morphine, and we can detect it in your urine, and it crosses into the brain, and it kind of makes you feel good, just like morphine. And so when you think of the foods that people binge on that can't stop eating, it is not broccoli. It is not <laughs> kale. You know, it is bread. It is pizza. It is the cookies. So oftentimes it's gluten and dairy, and we can detect these um, peptides, and we can also add back the enzymes to help people digest these products better. It's um, not well known in psychiatry. Uh, it was first developed um, about 30 years ago, first looked at, first studied in autism. We have animal studies. We can take this um, out of the urine of individuals and inject it into animals and see very abnormal, strange behaviors. And so does this mean that the gliodorphin is going to the same receptor sites that morphine would go to? Absolutely, because, good question, if in the animal studies we gave them naltrexone, so we blocked those yeah. receptors, and they didn't have the same reaction. Those are animal studies, but we could block the receptors. So taking, this is a separate show, but I've interviewed somebody who's written a book about low-dose naltrexone for other benefits. So is that a possibility that we could use a little bit of naltrexone to help balance that out or just clean up our diet and improve our attitude? Improving I know. I mean, uh, the book... You know, the book kind of establishes the the quite the range of binge eating where some people can change their diets, take supplements. But, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I look at medications, um, and, and there is a chapter on how to use naltrexone for those individuals that what I would refer to as a food addiction, and they um. cannot stop. So medication can be a part of this treatment plan. We We focus on supplements and particularly amino acids, oftentimes we can get results, but um, this illness is, is treatable and oftentimes an integrative approach might use short-term use of medications with um, nutritional supplements. And do you think as, do you think it requires, and that's in quote, air, air quotes, do you feel it's really best to do the the whole therapy of mental counseling in combination with the diet? So as their diet changes and they come back into like feeling more themselves or you'd have better words for that, that it helps I, I having think, a um, counselor? That is when, yeah, I mean, that's where we can use words like um, 100% confident that you will overcome this illness if we can include you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy 
uh, that has been shown to be helpful with binge eating. And, and some medications have been shown to be helpful. But oftentimes they're helpful for a while and then there's a, a relapse and ongoing frustration. So the three legs of this stool is the cognitive behavioral therapy, nutritional um, support, and filling in any deficiencies or abnormalities like the uh, food addiction, as well as um, medications if needed. And in the process, are we really looking at designing a lifestyle in the sense of if we eat balanced and figure out you help us or somebody helps us figure out our particular biochemical profile and possibly our epigenetic potential, we all get it sort of dialed in. It doesn't mean you have to meditate for an hour every day and have to only eat, you know, I'm not sure what, but you get more of a balance and you, you're, you're striving toward homeostasis. Is that our ultimate goal? I absolutely. I mean, I think those with binge eating have been feeling and, and the cover of my book is a roller coaster. You know, they, they've just been um, on on this roller coaster for so long, out of control, and uh, again, just overwhelmed with the shame and guilt because everyone's telling, you know, just eat less and exercise. And the chemistry of the brain uh, does not allow them to do that, as we now can appreciate other addictions. You can't just stop. So we, we don't develop a model of what to eat. So it's not kind of a diet book. You know, one of my favorite titles uh, in one of the chapters is the undiet. So it's really just helping people with a few things that they shouldn't eat, which is, you know, the high fructose corn syrup, MSG, and, and a lot of refined sugar. So the balance is your, your lifestyle that you choose for yourself. But there are just a few environmental factors in our diet that do aggravate a binge eating disorder. And I was, I can't use any of these words on air, stunned, <laughs> mind blown to see that MSG is, what, trending back? I thought it was sort of, oh, we sorry. knew about MSG. It's back? Really? I'm so glad you brought that up because, I, yeah, I didn't know if to laugh or to cry when oh. I started uh, reading, I think it was McDonald's, other companies, because the, the uproar is kind of over and the Chinese restaurant syndrome um, was the only focus. But if you go through the research in both animal studies, it is staggering uh, what MSG does to uh, brain cells. And, and we have good research um, looking at how it can create this, um, besides uh, disruption of blood sugar, regulating um, these kind of neurotoxins in the brain and contributing to another form of food addiction. I, I have Yikes. individuals who were so obsessed and, with eating and craving uh, Chinese food with MSG that their their stories were similar to any alcoholic or uh, or would that would start getting cravings when they drove by the street that the bar was. Um, so MSG is a powerful neurotoxin that not for everybody, um, but for a subset does contribute to um, food addiction, if you will. And, and look at the foods again, that they're kind of craving and binging. Many of these foods have MSG or the hundred other names 
that um, we hide uh, the term MSG in. Wow. I have to start looking for that again? Although I don't eat out of boxes or anything wrapped in paper very often. so. But it's just – I thought it was really one of the more shocking things I read was, really, it's back? How's that possible? Where have I been? Really appalling. Right? We we blink and they uh, get it back because it makes food <laughs> taste better. So you're going to sell, sell more food and then you're going to crave that food and some people are going to be craving um, foods that are destructive for their health and could be part of this binge eating cycle. Wow. I have to step sideways for a moment and ask you about and this will dial us into talking, having you talk more about anorexia. What is your, what are your thoughts on social media? This potential relentless beating, that self-winding beating of social media can occur from people getting caught in loops of seeing what people are supposed to look like and that kind of thing. Talk about the social media factor, would you please? Uh, sure. I mean, it has profound implications um, for mental health and, and mental illness, um, including suicide. The It's hard not to bring up the uh, the TV show 13 Reasons about an adolescent suicide. I don't know if it's two seasons at least or three, but certainly a dramatic spike in suicides that were documented um, 30 days after this release and, and then some. And so when uh, we kind of glamorize, if you will, um, things like suicide, um, it comes incorporated into our adolescence uh, thought process. If we glamorize a certain type of body or a certain type of muscle or a certain type of look, it also gets stuck indelibly in some of our um, young adults. So for suicide, uh, which I'm particularly concerned about that epidemic, and for anorexia, where our patients can compare, contrast, and get support for a uh, life-threatening diet. Um, it has dramatic implications for exacerbating uh, mental illness. I think we've seen the positive side of um, social media with the coronavirus and, and staying connected in, in some ways, but the destructive side has been so much of um, my career of the past 10 years and we talk about you know throwing gasoline on the fire of a vulnerable adolescent um, with a um, neuropsychiatric illness and have are people doing research I imagine they are but are you aware of research where people are actually looking at the effect of staring at the whether you talk about blue light or whatever it is, just the idea of being involved in social media relentlessly, the effects of the hormone cascade of that, the rush or the addictive quality or all of that? Well, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of good science, neuroscience research, but there is a regular flow of data saying increased screen time associated with depression and even suicide and increased screen time, uh, you know, aggravating many of our uh, neuropsychiatric illnesses in adolescence. So we have all this data and, and research just saying there is a cause and effect, um, but not a lot of neurochemistry looking at dopamine cascades 
and the uh, potential addictive quality to it that I've seen recently. And can you talk a little bit more about dopamine in terms of how it's how we get it? Well, let me let me back that up ever so slightly. So in the days when we were living in caves before there was social media, did we still have a hormone cascade of dopamine rush? And how did it occur? Absolutely. I mean, our whole basis for survival is coordinated around this dopamine rush because dopamine is kind of the reward chemical and we just look for dopamine, more dopamine. So, you know, food and sex are the simplest ways to get uh, increased dopamine and that's been the survival of our species. So when the dopamine cascade is out of control, like drugs, like cocaine, which gives us this incredible rush of dopamine then goes away and then we're looking for more. For our purposes today, um, a pleasurable meal or food in general should provide some increased dopamine and then we have a, uh, a feel good. And what happens both in animal studies as well as a, um, uh, in humans that this dopamine cascade gets out of control. And that's some of the binge eating uh, disorders. So this uh, eating a lot uh, of food in a rapid period of time creates dopamine. That's a positive reward. So we do it again in a few hours. And by doing this repetitively, it kind of messes up the neurochemistry. So now our body and our brain does want more of it. And again, food addiction for some individuals, not everyone with binge eating, is not dissimilar to this um, addiction that we're seeing in other uh, worlds. And what's the long-term effect on the, hor the hormones that affect the adrenals if you have chronic dopamine-seeking, whatever it be, but excessive pumping of dopamine all the time? We're not really designed for dopamine running all the time. I mean, it, it comes and goes and flows. But if you do a lot of it, does that have a long-term effect on the adrenals and digestive system and everything? Uh, I think it wreaks havoc with our, our nutritional reserves and absolutely our, our adrenal system and um, just creates havoc. I mean, dopamine is primarily in the brain, but it's also used throughout the body. It, it does regulate the drive, motivation, reward. And if we're uh, in that addictive cycle, the uh, stress hormones choose up our nutrients, magnesium, vitamin C, and the B complex. And, and then we start this chronic nutritional deficiency. I don't know. I feel like we could do a whole show just talking about that because there's so many, I mean, even in this time of the coronavirus, I see people who, or I talk with people, I don't see them now, who call all pumped from something they just saw or read. And my first advice is back away from the device. Just back away for a while. But really, talk a bit more about, you know, long-term stress in terms of its effect on the 
because I all of these conditions that you're talking about, whether it be anorexia or bulimia, have actually let me form this in a question. Do anorexia and bulimia have long-term effect on the immune system? Deleterious and not unlike the dopamine rush. Can all of this lead to a suppressed or stressed out immune system? Yes. I mean, I think as much as my career has been kind of this nutritional psychiatry, helping people kind of nourish their brain in a better way, the most powerful influence on our health after 35 years of practice really is our ability to modulate stress. And it's not just the environmental stress, it's what stress does to the body. And that is where I've seen the most havoc from severe trauma, that level of stress to the chronic stress that many of us are living with every day now around um, this pandemic. And so as our stress hormones get into that fight or flight response, we start to utilize more nutrients, as I said earlier. So vitamin C, which we need to fight infections, magnesium, which we need to modulate this response, Uh, many of the B vitamins. And if this happens for a day, we're going to be able to reset. But this chronic stress response for days and weeks and months um, is really a setup for a wide range of both physical and uh, psychological repercussions. So I have used this for a long time, and I'm just I'm laughing. I had to actually mute myself for a moment because I realized you're the perfect person to answer ask this of. For a long time, I've said that our brain doesn't know any differences between really thinking about a cyber-toothed tiger and actually being confronted by a cyber-toothed tiger. Is that accurate or is somewhat accurate? I think it's uh, very accurate, absolutely. Um, and I think that the harder part, let me take your analogy a step further because I like it. If we see the cyber-toothed tiger, um, all the neurochemical changes, the sympathetic overflow, we're going to be able to act on them because the blood's going to go to our muscles and we're going to run. If we're sitting at home, sitting in our office, sitting in our cars and thinking, we're going to get that uh, adrenaline, that sympathetic overflow, but essentially it's like our legs are tied and we can't run. So to me, that is actually more destructive, physiological damage because our ability to act provide some outlet for this dramatic overflow of hormones. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because adrenaline is really meant for something. I mean, in the sense of flight or flight, it's really, it's that short burst that absolutely helps us. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, run from the, the tiger or it's, um, help somebody in a crisis, um, but it is a short-term solution where our body needs to reset, and we reset on many levels, psychologically, nutritionally, and and even spiritually. Mm -hmm. I'm jumping slightly here, but I want to talk about diet and the idea of dieting, because I, I... I know people that right now, as soon as you use the word dieting, you can see them rolling their eyes 
or going, oh, what do I have to give up now? Or how am I, you know, they feel bad about it. Can we talk about what I'll call recontextualizing dieting more along the lines of food as fuel, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, in this book, I avoided the concept, but it's just a wonderful introduction uh, by Ralph Carlson, who's a PhD and a registered dietitian, uh, you know, who describes the process, you know, in one chapter, you know, the diets don't work and they haven't worked for 40 plus years. And it just really sets so many patients on this cycle of, of shame or guilt. And as we think about lifestyle and we think about health, we can make huge dents in our relationship with food and in the need uh, for weight loss if that's part of our um, goal. And it helps. We feel better. Is there is there that possibility that if we eat better, we we move toward just feeling better, and then we reverse the cascade of, let's say, sugar. You eat sugar, your blood swings, you feel like you need more sugar, versus eating quality foods, we then begin to feel better, and we then actually begin to get better? That's a question. I think, you know, we hear the story every day um, as our lifestyle changes and as the quality of the food changes, um, we feel better. And as a psychiatrist, it's not always as simple with those with major mental illness and those with genetic vulnerabilities to uh, psychiatric illness. And that's why, you know, I urge my psychiatric colleagues, we need to go a step beyond just diet and lifestyle. But for so many of us, patient in these risk factors will just enable us to feel better. And uh, physiologically, our brains will function better to give us that both control and what to me is so important, that peace of mind. Peace of mind. Wow. Let's just pause there for a moment and I'll breathe that in. Peace of mind. Wow. That's an exciting idea currently. Wow. Well, that, um, that is the, um, the new program that we're developing for, you know, physician wellness and health um, and trying to help prevent, you know, burnout and uh, help our clinicians get the care they need. So I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I think that's great. Peace of mind. I did a show recently with um, a doctor who's written a number of books about stress reduction in all sorts of areas, business and your life and everything. And she has a one minute meditation because she's very type A and she admits it. And she said, just, I started with one minute, just breath in, breath out, release and you know that, and found that to be beneficial. And it's just, I think we all need to have that sort of, you know, let's just start with a minute. Just that, just start there. Just let the cells have a moment of, oh, it's okay. And then we'll go back to running in circles and pretty soon it becomes a habit of, oh, we can actually have a peaceful moment. Wow, that's very exciting. <laughs> um, what is the importance of quality proteins in everything you're 
you talk about in the importance of pro quality proteins affecting our, in my words, affecting our hormones, but the availability of quality proteins for us to help build the system and have a good flow of quality amino acids. Uh, to me, you know, as a psychiatrist practicing so long, it's just um, sometimes funny, but uh, how much of my work is dealing with uh, digestive systems. And I would say the most important part of this book, if you skimmed it or read it, then you picked it up, is our ability to digest protein. So let me just give you an example. So many of our patients struggling with binge eating disorder are eating adequate protein, so it has nothing to do with dietary intake. Some of our patients, in their efforts to eat a healthy lifestyle, are spending the extra money for their organic, grass-fed, you know, flown in from the Alaska, New Zealand quality foods, protein. Then I do a blood test. I look at their amino acid levels, the breakdown products of protein in their blood. And they're very, very low. And the disconnect is the ability to digest the protein in your diet. And the core principle in this book is what I said earlier, the neurochemistry of appetite and satiety is based on these amino acids and a couple amino acids put together are called peptides. And those peptides in the brain control appetite. And there, there are many of them, you know, uh, uh, ghrelin and leptin and NPY. These are all chemicals. But there's researchers all around the world that are looking at this for obesity. Nobody's looking at it for binge eating disorder. But to summarize, if you don't break down the protein, you don't have the amino acids into the brain to make these peptides to help your body stay hungry, full. So the core part of this program is giving the amino acids in a, in a powder, free-form amino acids, and also giving the enzymes that you need to break down this chicken and fish or eggs that you're eating. And then you'll develop hunger and satiety. It, it is really sometimes that simple. Radical. I accused you of being a radical backstage. I now <laughs> say it out loud. <laughs> what? Digestion. It's amazing. Who thought it would come down to digestion? But it really, it's amazing. If you can't, it's, it's in that category of food is fuel. You know, right. I know people that drive expensive cars and go out and get the best fuel they can and make sure everything in their system is working correctly in terms of filtration and injectors and yada, yada, yada. And then they'll go pound it down with an MSG-ridden, now I know, MSG-ridden kind of burger thing without right. even thinking about it. So it's, and, it's amazing how much, how much conversation to... people are talking about digestion now. And it, you were going to say something about engines, I can tell. Well, no, I, I was just going to go back to what you brought up a couple of times is stress. And one of the things that we've seen with many of our patients with, with binge eating disorder and other psychiatric illnesses, but binge eating disorder in particular, that sometimes uh, chronic stress or an early trauma can actually shut off our digestive system. If you remember our analogy with the running from the saber-toothed tiger, 
we shut off our digestive system so we can get all the blood to the muscles and run. And what we've found over the years that somebody who might have had a trauma 5, 10, 15 years ago, their digestive system hasn't kind of turned back on in a highly functional way. So even though they're trying this healthy lifestyle, even though they're eating this high-quality protein, they're not producing the, the digestive enzymes to break down that protein. And, and I'm quite sure it's due to that um, stress. Wow. I remember it was several decades ago when I was doing terrestrial radio where I interviewed Jonathan Wright, who wrote a book about uh, called uh, Stomach Acid is Good for You. And even way back then when he was talking about that simple feat of adding hydrochloric acid to your diet to aid digestion, and particularly as we get older, we lose some of that capacity. So he was 30-ish years ago talking about digestion in his own way. Well, uh, Jonathan Wright is, is a you know, mentor, and, um, and I probably learned it from him, and it was probably closer to 40 years ago when he started talking about this. And um, every one of my lectures, I have a cover of that book, you know, Stomach Acid is Good for You. <laughs> I didn't even know that. I, I can't say anything longer, further back than 30 years because it just makes me suddenly go, really? 40 years? Is that possible? No. But yeah, pretty much. Well, I, I, I was reading Jonathan Wright when I was in college. So he uh, was probably the inspiration for me to do the work that I'm doing now. That's Amazing. Because for me, he was the, when I was doing terrestrial radio and I was interviewing people about health and environmental issues, I stumbled into him and that was like a light bulb for me of hearing what he was talking about and how passionate he was then and how I interviewed him a couple of years back. And he still equally is like, like acid is good for you. Really? Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, incredible. Um, and the sad, the sad part of so much of what he said, whether it's hydrochloric acid, amino acid, lithium, uh, we, I've been talking to him about that. He was the forward to my book on lithium. I mean, this is information that we've had as a medical community for 30 years, and, and we're just barely acting on this uh, very important information. It's, it's amazing. There's a whole other show on just that subject right there that as you say, people like Jonathan Wright have been talking about this for decades, for 40 years. I'll just say it. All right, for 40 years. And the fact that it's now people are beginning to talk about digestion and the import of it and how he's been talking about this forever. It's really – he's a hero for me. Yes, me as well. And where does – exercise fit into this and I don't mean going to the gym and working out for hours I was one of those gym rats for a couple decades myself so I don't mean that I just mean some kind of exercise is that helpful to anorexic and bulimics and other mental states well I think um, the research is quite clear uh, depression anxiety ADHD uh, academic research looking at how uh, profound uh, influence it can have on mental health. For binge eating, hasn't been studied as much, but clearly um, likely similar mechanisms. With 
anorexia nervosa, there are many complications. Many of our patients with anorexia are, you know, addicted to exercise in the gyms three, four, five hours a day, walking the streets. So there's a syndrome of hyperactivity of starvation. So some of our anorexic patients literally cannot stop moving. And sometimes that exercise causes uh, ongoing uh, weight loss and uh, precipitates medical problems. But other than anorexia nervosa, the scientific literature is undisputable. The best antidepressant we have is exercise. But in the real world of, of psychiatry and mental health, a patient walking into your office, sad, depressed, not motivated, thinking of dying, they're not the ones who are going to say, yes, I'm going to the gym or I'm going to run around the block. So we need a bigger model than just saying exercise. Oh, I consider exercise as a possibility is just going out and walking. I don't mean you have to be pumping irons and dressed up like Jack LaLanne, although God bless Jack right. LaLanne. Um, just being out in nature is, I think, I feel phenomenally beneficial just in general. It's nature. It's not to like. I mean, besides the kind of emotional, um, you know, pleasurable part of, of being in nature, I mean, we actually have good research, um, some of it with uh, ADHD kids, some of it with depression, that being in nature can change your brain waves. Um, it really affects the neurochemistry um, and it has uh, implications for mental health treatment. There's actually some interesting work done by Dianis Bareford Kroger, who wrote a book called Call of the Forest, who was an MD and then became a botanist and started doing research on forests in Japan where they actually do forest bathing. They actually have parks where people, ah. you know, it's designed for people to go into and get the benefit of the esters coming off of the trees. And she's looked at Incredible. a lot of that work, really. I've attended a conference with her and a workshop, a three-day workshop with her, and it was mind-blowing to hear all of that put together because I've always been a fan of nature. And she was saying there's actual brainwave, just exactly what you said, brainwave shift from being in nature. So more nature, perhaps time at the beach even. Just a radical idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're moving close to the end. What would you like people to know that I haven't either asked you or, or you know, balance it? You know, what's the – how do we get a balance here? And I'm kind of, I'm kind of tossing the coronavirus in there in the sense of everything that we've talked about is going to help the immune system, even though I know you're leaning into looking at bulimics and anorexia and really, really serious conditions of eating disorders. But isn't everything that we've talked about beneficial for a longer, healthier life for even people like me, maybe? I think it's quite clear, and, and the, the scientific literature has been uh, showing us this evidence over the past 10 years, and it really is just a matter of getting that research into clinical practice. There's this tremendous lag between, you know, discoveries 
that we can make in, in science um, that uh, don't get into clinical practice for, for years, 10, 15, 20 years. But absolutely, as we change our diet or lifestyle, that it has profound implications on our immune system. And we know that stress can cause dysfunction in the immune system, can lower our immune system. So it is that kind of balance that we all struggle to master. And I think the most important thing that I'd like to end on, we've touched on, is that there's no right um, lifestyle, there's no right diet, there's no right vitamin supplement for everybody. Uh, our genetic uh, uniqueness is so profound. And to me, that is the beginning of, of medicine, is understanding that individual uniqueness. And as individuals, we, we, we know that on our own, what we do better with this exercise, we do better with this food. But as we kind of strive to uh, understand what works for us and what helps us, uh, we can work collaboratively with our doctors to develop more personalized uh, treatment plans, particularly for mental illness. Wonderful. And I can't recommend highly enough people go out and find your book. And where where would you like people to find your book? And where can people find out more about your work? You don't – do you still see patients? You seem kind of busy. Yeah, we don't, we don't do uh, much. I'm doing some consults with other physicians. So most of my world now is, um, you know, running an eating disorder facility at Walden Behavioral Care. So we're treating patients in a hospital and residential. And the training, psychiatryredefined.org, is our training programs for clinicians on all mental health topics. And, and the books are all on my website, James Greenblatt md.com and we've written six i think or seven trying to get through every major psychiatric illness over the next few years just to give individuals a an alternative a, a choice in how they seek and recover from mental illness wonderful thank you dr greenblatt a pleasure as always so many shows i really appreciate so many the opportunity to be... in there thank you yes yeah. Thank you very much. It was great. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the weekend. Wash your hands, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.